Well, good morning again. If you're a guest with us, my name is Raymond Johnson. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ Church. It's a privilege and delight to have you in worship with us today. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it with me to the Gospel of John. And if you came without a copy of God's Word today, we have one underneath the seat in front of you or near you. Just feel free to reach under there, take one of those out. We'd love for you to use that throughout the service. And feel free to take it home with you if you do not have one that you can call your own. John 5 will be on page 890 of the Bible provided for you. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, large numbers are chapter numbers, small numbers are verse numbers. We've been moving through a series of sermons in John's gospel, and we'll be in John through the majority of next year. We're coming now to chapter 5, and I will begin reading in chapter 5, verse 1, in just a moment. John writes... Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself, we're here speaking to us today. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As we regularly remind ourselves, your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And Father, we ask now as we turn our attention to your word that you would help us, that you would help us to focus on it, that you would give us ears to hear the truth of the gospel as it has been decisively revealed in your word, that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of Christ as he has been revealed in your word, that you would drive us into deeper repentance and deeper faith if we are Christians, that we might be strengthened for our walk in this world. And Father, we pray for those who are here with us now, who are not yet Christians, that in this time together, you would use your word to draw them to everlasting life, that you would do the good work of causing them to be born again, And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the wonders of the big cities this time of year are all of the festive opportunities that they provide to gather together. From Philly's Center City Plaza to New York City's Rockefeller Center and beyond and everywhere else, if you go to those cities, you have wonderful opportunities to gather and enjoy the season. But if you look closely or if you travel off the beaten path, you will inevitably find hundreds if not thousands of homeless, sick, and infirm people sitting on the curbs begging as you walk by. For many of us, it's an uncomfortable sight, and it's an uncomfortable reality for us to observe, a reality that we would prefer to avoid because we want to enjoy the holiday season, because these people are a grim reminder that life is not festive for all, even at Christmas. We find Jesus interacting with one of these people in this passage of John's Gospel this morning in a section that has become known to many as the festival cycle. John 5 begins a new section of John's Gospel, and from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 10, the Apostle John will show us Jesus fulfilling and surpassing elements in the Sabbath in chapter 5 and the Passover in chapter 6 and tabernacles in chapter 7, and dedication in chapter 10. And as Jesus does, the careful reader will continue to observe an escalating conflict, a conflict that is first evidenced in the Jewish people's response to Jesus when he heals this invalid, a story that teaches us that Jesus wants to heal us more than we want to be healed because he is the authoritative son. And it is on the authoritative son that we will focus our attention this Christmas Eve, as four points frame our time together this morning. The son's inquiry, the son's authority, the son's conflict, the son's equality. Notice first the son's inquiry. Look again with me in verse one. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool 
in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five-roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? After this, in verse 1, indicates an indefinite period of time. And as best we can tell from the festival cycle, it's about 18 months after the events of John 4 in John's gospel. And about 18 months after the events of John 4, Jesus returns once again to Jerusalem to an astonishing sight. And we can only begin to really imagine how pathetic the scene of a multitude of crippled and sick and lame and dirty people gathered around a pool of water they thought had curative powers would be. It's hard for us to imagine just how intense their anguish of waiting around the water had to be before it was stirred and the rat race began of one person trying to get to the water before everyone else so that they could be, quote, healed. And yet, despite the gathering of a large number of people, John tells us that Jesus does not lose this man in a sea of faces as he, verse 5, focuses his attention on this one person, a man who did not even know who Jesus was. The focus of the passage narrows from hundreds of people gathered around the pool, swarming to this place, to one individual. From a multitude to one man. And if you're a careful reader of John's gospel, you've seen a pattern emerging throughout the gospel. A pattern that is showing us that Jesus does not deal with a sea of nameless faces. That Jesus deals with people personally and specifically. Just like he has to deal with everybody in this room personally and specifically. So verse 5, though there lay a multitude of individuals at Bethesda, Jesus walked up to this one man and verse 6 already knew his background. Jesus already knew his whole story. He knew that he had been there for a very long time. Verse 5, 38 years to be exact longer than most people lived in the ancient world when the life expectancy was somewhere between 35 and 40. It's hard for us to imagine what it must have been like for this person to languish in this condition in the ancient world for this long. 38 birthdays. We don't know if it was 38 birthdays after a few birthdays or if it was all 38 birthdays. 38 Christmas seasons for us. 38 winters, and the lack of hygiene and health care would have filled him, like anyone else, with such hopelessness and despair. So it's strange for us when we begin to really try to think, what must it have been like for this man in that world when there wasn't an urgent care nearby for Jesus to walk up to someone like this and say, verse 6, do you want to be healed? Is Jesus once again being insensitive in John's gospel? Or perhaps Jesus is unfeeling because he knows that he's not going to get sick. He's God Almighty. And he would wonder why this person is. Why would he even ask an invalid at a healing pool if he wants to be healed? It's like you going to ask a person in the ICU with stage four cancer if they want to be cured. The man's condition and his location indicate his desire. He wants to be healed. When Jesus asks a question in John's gospel... He's not asking to gain information. 
He's asking to obtain a confession, a confession of sin from the man. If you have been with us throughout our study of John's gospel, you've seen a progression and a pattern of Jesus doing this with people from John 2 to now when Jesus asked his requesting mother, what does this have to do with me in chapter 2, verse 4? Jesus isn't being cavalier. He was pointing ahead. He was pointing ahead, even at the beginning of his ministry, to a work that was greater than turning water into wine, to the work of his own substitutionary atonement, to the work of redemption, the work of salvation of God's chosen people by his death on the cross when the water would be poured out from him for the salvation of people. And when Jesus asked Nicodemus why he didn't understand the things that he was talking about with him, in chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus wasn't trying to fine-tune his gospel presentation so as to better learn how to explain himself as the savior of the world to people. He was exposing Nicodemus' spiritual bankruptcy so that he would understand, you must be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of God. And when Jesus asked the woman at the well in Samaria where her husband was in chapter 4, verse 16, he wasn't asking for information that he lacked as if he didn't know that she was married or if she had lost her husband. He was asking because he wanted to bring her to a place of conviction that would secure her worship as she moved from being an adulterous woman to a converted woman. Or when Jesus responded to the official whose son was dying with, many, with what many have perceived to be a harsh response, asking why he would not believe until he saw signs and wonders in chapter 4, verse 48, Jesus was actually doing a merciful work in his life, personally, while speaking to the crowds broadly about the state of their hearts and their own theological error in, regarding their misunderstanding of God. So now here again in John 5, the question posed to this invalid does not emerge from a calloused heart. Jesus isn't being harsh or cynical or difficult. The question does not imply some sort of desire in the invalid's part to will himself to be healed as many false faith teachers have taught from that day to this day. The question manifests that what many people say they really want is not what they really want at all. And Jesus teaches us It is not certainly what they really need often. Frankly, they, like many of us, do not understand the depth of their real need. Friends, Jesus asks, verse 6, do you want to be healed? Because Jesus wants to heal this man more than he wants to be healed. And the clue to seeing that comes not only from the man's response, but from the occasion of the question itself. John establishes the setting in the opening verse. Verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus' second trip to Jerusalem in John's gospel, and though John does not indicate which feast brought Jesus to Jerusalem on this day in verse 1, the crucial point is that the healing took place on the Sabbath. Look at verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. And on this Sabbath day, God's Son speaks to God's historic people with unprecedented power because he is the authoritative Son. The son's inquiry. Notice second, the son's authority. Look at verse seven. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. The man is completely oblivious to what is taking place in the encounter. He has no knowledge of who Jesus is, and he demonstrates no awareness of what is really going on, and he has no faith in Jesus. 
In response to Jesus' question, he simply says, verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. The people believed that if a person was placed in the water before anyone else after the water had been stirred, they would be healed. This man is aware of the superstition of everyone else in the ancient world. A superstition that taught that an angel had come and stirred the water, but which we now know from archaeology was just the bubbling of two underground currents. And his response reveals a heart. A heart that is held captive to something that is completely understandable. He is held captive to a way of life that sees this pool as an ultimate answer to his great, what he thinks is his greatest problem. If I get there at the right moment, if I just did the right thing, if I make the right choice at the right time after saying the right words, poof, all will be well and no more years like this. Friends, not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? From the ancient world of the 21st century, this has been the exhortation of many false teachers. If you do this at this time, in this way, all will be well for you. Life will be straightened out and your body will be healed. But sadly, it's not just false teachers who believe that. Christians here this morning live that way. If I just do the right things, the right way, in the right time, with the right people, at the right kind of church, all will be well. We live in such a transactional way with God. If I can just tip over into the goodness, then good things will come to me. Friends, Jesus disagrees. And like those before him, the invalid manifests misunderstanding at what Jesus is actually doing. You must be born again, Jesus says to Nicodemus. But how can I get back into my mother's womb? You should ask me for living water, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman. But you don't even have a bucket. How can you give me living water? I have food you know nothing of, he says to the disciples. Did someone bring him something to eat when we weren't looking? Do you want to be healed, he says to the invalid. Yeah, but no one will put me in the pool. Like those before him in John's gospel narrative, this man manifests misunderstanding. And like those before him, he doesn't see his real need. He's looking to something else while Jesus wants to heal him more than he wants to be healed. Yet Jesus says something to him that changes everything in the course of his life. Jesus' command to him is simple. Don't do anything except what you're told to do. Verse 8. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. When Jesus speaks in John's gospel, something happens. Jesus commanded the man to pick up his pallet and walk. And the man picked up his pallet and walked away. He was healed immediately. He's not partially healed He's not healed in stages. The words of Jesus change everything for this man. The man was physically changed from an invalid who could not walk to a man with muscle, muscle strength to take up his mat on which he was lying and walk away. Now, friends, in John's gospel, that is power. And it is a power that does not come from the man. It doesn't come from his belief. It doesn't come from something that he's conjured up from his good deeds. It comes from the very words of Jesus, just like it did when Jesus turned the water into wine, just like it did when the official son was made well 
But John doesn't want us to get lost in the miraculous. John knows that our propensity in all of these moments is to look at the miraculous. Look at that, water turned to wine. Look at that, a boy who was dying, now alive. Look at that, somebody who was an invalid, now walking. John doesn't want us to get lost in the miraculous because he knows that Jesus wants to heal you and I more than we want to be healed, deeper than we want to be healed because he is the authoritative son. So though the man is healed, not all is made well in John's gospel narrative. Something is still wrong. And why would something still be wrong when everything that seemed to be wrong has been made right? Look at the last part of verse 9. It was the Sabbath. The son's inquiry, the son's authority. Notice third, the son's conflict. Verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man who said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. What is the Sabbath and why would they care if someone had been healed on it? The Sabbath was a feast, John tells us, that the scripture teaches us was mandated by God in the Old Testament for the very purpose of reminding the people of the redemption and rescue of God. The Sabbath is a communal activity. It's not something that they did personally as they experienced God on their own terms. It's a communal activity that solidified the power of God's word among them as they all stopped, rested, and remembered what God had done for each and every one of them and all of them together. And friends, if you read the Old Testament closely, you'll see that that's how God works throughout the Old Testament. He establishes rules and commandments festivals and feast days and events of remembrance throughout the history of his historic people as a visible reminder and a communal reminder that in the experience of the festival itself, they would remember. Remember what they're prone to forget, that God sustains them, that God continues to work among them even to the present hour. Tragically, though, when we come to texts like this in our own day, we hear of the Sabbath and we think of it as something only specific to the Ten Commandments. A day relevant for Old Testament people that we don't really need to know much about because we are, quote, New Testament Christians. But the Sabbath was more than a day. It was a sign of God's covenant for them. It was a blessing designed from the very beginning by God to be a time of healing and restoration and instruction for his people. The day of rest was meant to help them remember God's rescue in the past, when they were slaves in Egypt, when they were in a far worse condition. The day of rest was a healing moment for God's people, a moment that reminded them that God continued to sustain them and would continue to sustain them. God instituted and commanded the Sabbath to be a blessing to his people, not a burden to his people, as they rested and worshiped. So if we pay attention, we see not only that this happened on the Sabbath, but we see that the goal of the Sabbath is not simply not working and not doing anything. The main goal of the Sabbath was healing. And how were they healed? Worship. What was supposed to be going on on the Sabbath day? Worship. 
But what had the day become for us in John's gospel? A sham, a day of complaining and grumbling, not rejoicing in God, but being frustrated with God. Why? Because the keeping of the Sabbath rules and the regulations had become more important than the God whom they should have been honoring on the Sabbath. The teaching of the religious leaders had so worked its way in to what the people did on a daily basis and onto their Sabbath day preparations to such an extent that the invalids who were largely dumped at this place were left to fend for themselves in ways that actually obscured the true path to healing. So now they're looking to superstitions to find a way out. The real path, whether they were physically healed or not, And what is the real path toward healing? According to John's gospel, the knowledge of God and his commandments as they have been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of God and his commandments provide for each man and each woman who read and hear them and obey this path towards God's son, Jesus Christ. Friends, it's impossible for us to understand what is taking place in this interaction between Jesus and this invalid unless and until we understand the timing of this question. Do you want to be healed? This healing comes on the Sabbath, on a day when Jesus was revealing what a corrupt and utter sham all of their organized religion truly was, on a day that had been so perverted by the very people who were to preserve the day. And notice the aftermath of the encounter. The Jews saw what had happened. It was obvious to them that a man had been healed after being in this place for 38 years. A man who had been unable to walk at 38 different festivals was now walking and talking about what had occurred. Hardly something that you're able to keep quiet and push off to the corner. And the religious leaders, verse 12, stopped him and brought him before them and asked him about the day's events. Verse 12, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Instead of rejoicing with the man, praise God. Instead of marveling at the power of God, what a wonderful and majestic and mighty God that we have for doing this. Instead of giving thanks to God, we're so grateful to our God. They come to the man who had been laying in the same place for 38 different summers, and instead of thanking God, they bring legal charges against the man for being healed. Verse 10. It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. The occasion for the man's healing became an opportunity for religious exploitation. These doctors of the law who knew all of the right things still practiced their religion in all of the wrong ways. Friends, I wonder if that describes your faith here if you call yourself a Christian. You know all of the right things, but you don't do it with the right heart. You practice it with grumbling and discontent instead of giving thanks You complain, why is God doing it this way instead of this way? These doctors of the law, these synagogue rulers, these Jewish leaders became interrogators against man and they tried to frame all of the circumstances as a sin against God when it is God himself that had healed this man in the first place. And when they do, the man gives a strange defense. He deflects and he begins in some ways to accuse Jesus, verse 11. But the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. He points to Jesus as the object and the cause of his healing. But he does so in a way that does not reveal a gratitude of heart or a recognition of Jesus' authority. The text almost reads as if the man who was healed 
joined in the cause of the Jews grumbling against Jesus. As another aside, how many times have people in this room received what they have prayed for from God or have received merciful providences from God only finding yourself grumbling against the God who has been so merciful towards you in the past, just like this man. The God who was once so kind is now so cruel. The God who was once so generous is now so stingy. The God who had been so thoughtful is now so thoughtless. The man who owned his newfound ability to walk to the mercy of Jesus now becomes an accomplice in the pursuit of Jesus. But notice who's truly in charge here throughout the whole story. It's Jesus. The man did not know the name of Jesus. He had only seen him and related what had happened to him. But the Bible says Jesus withdrew and escaped into the crowd, verse 13, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Jesus did not want to be known at this point as he did with the woman at the well or with the official who had asked for the healing of his son. He desired to hide himself from the man that he had healed in preparation for another interaction a slightly more direct and more uncomfortable interaction. Jesus knew him, but he did not know Jesus. As is always the case, my friends. Jesus knows all, and Jesus knows everyone. The question is, does Jesus know you, savingly? Jesus knows everything about everyone and all of the circumstances of your life, just like he knew this man's. And as he did with the man who had laid at Bethesda for 38 years, he knows the entirety of your story. After his encounter with the Jews, Jesus found him, verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Notice what Jesus says to him. Jesus comes to him again. The man was a passive recipient of the actions and words of Jesus twice. He could do nothing but listen and respond to Jesus. And notice what Jesus says to him. See, you are well. Jesus wanted to make sure that the man understood that what had happened here was nothing on account of the man. He didn't make himself well. Jesus made him well. And then Jesus stated to him a most uncomfortable command. Verse 14, sin no more. How about that? Sin no more. Why? Look at verse 14. That nothing worse may happen to you. Now take a step back for a moment and think. What could be worse than living in the ancient world without modern health care beside a healing pool for 38 years without the use of your legs? What's worse than being a dirty, invalid, poor beggar for four decades of your life. Is there something worse than that? Jesus indicates that there's something worse than that because Jesus wants to heal the man more than he wants to be healed. So he says that there is something worse than poverty. There is something worse than two bad legs. There is something far worse than a terminal diagnosis. There is something worse facing the judgment of God apart from the Son of God. And why would anyone face the judgment of God that Jesus begins to talk about in the upcoming verses? 
because of their sin. Friend, you might be here today and not know it and not believe it, or you might be here today and you've heard it many times and you need to hear it afresh. Your sin brings the judgment of God. On account of your sin, the wrath of God is coming. And every single person in this room and every single person you have ever ever met and every single person on planet Earth will stand before a holy God and face his judgment. Jesus tells this man and everyone who is reading John's gospel and listening to these words that there is something worse than poverty, something worse than being lame, something worse than a diagnosis that renders your life difficult, something worse than chronic illness. There is facing the judgment of God without the Son of God. And friend, you will face that judgment for your sin, sins that you have willingly committed from the youngest moments of your life to this present moment, sins that you have committed against a holy God because you love your sin more than you love God. You will face judgment where God will give you what you rightly deserve for the way that you have lived your life. And apart from the Son of God, you will stand there unshielded and unprotected and unrighteous and you will bear all of the weight of your sin for all of eternity unless you are covered in the blood of the Son of God who substituted himself for you to bear your wrath and judgment and pain. But friends, if you are here and you are a Christian and you stand there on that day in Christ, you have nothing to fear because on that day when God examines your life, what he will see is your faith alone and the Son of God alone who is imputed and given his righteousness to you alone that you might be holy and blameless and above reproach and shielded from the fury of God's wrath And you will know mercy. Mercy greater than this man knew on this day. Mercy greater than walking again. Mercy greater than your son living again. Mercy greater than being pardoned for sleeping with at least six men in your life. Mercy greater than having water turned to wine on a day that was important to you. Mercy, great grace that was free and abundant in Christ. You will know that forgiveness and that mercy for all of eternity and be spared the fury of God's wrath. And friend, to receive that mercy, the Bible tells us it is astonishingly simple. Repent of your sins. Turn away from it. Cling to Christ Trust in him alone and be born again. Believer, be encouraged with the simplicity of God on this Christmas Eve that he would love you enough to give you a simple gospel message. Turn and believe. Trust and obey. Cling to my son, Christ forever. An unbeliever, non-Christian, hear the mercy of God afresh, the great present for you today on this Christmas Eve. Come and live and be born again. Trust in this Christ who reveals himself to broken, outcast people who live nasty, dirty lives, who live hopeless, despairing lives. Jesus didn't come to make a bunch of clean people cleaner. Jesus came to heal broken, dirty, wretched people. And the pictures that we get in John's gospel are a picture of our spiritual condition that we're all just like that and worse standing in far greater need than this. Because friends, Jesus wants to heal you more than you want to be healed. 
He wants to do something greater for you. The things that you have prayed for in this life that you would hope to receive. He wants to give you an eternal blessing. And this day of all days reminds us that he did it by sending his son. But notice that not only Jesus, but this man teaches us that sin has consequences. Sometimes it brings about physical consequences. Sometimes it brings about relational consequences. But Jesus tells us here that there are consequences that are worse than physical consequences, that are worse than relational consequences, and they are irreversible apart from the power of God. Notice the response of the man. We don't see him responding to Jesus like the woman at the well or the official son who was healed. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. What's the immediate response of the man after learning that it's Jesus who did this for him? He went away and told the Jews, it's Jesus that you're looking for. And what does that result in? Open hostility toward Jesus in John's gospel. The first of it in John's gospel. And what is Jesus' response to open hostility? A statement of equality because he is the authoritative son. The son's inquiry, the son's authority, the son's conflict. Notice fourth, the son's equality. Look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling himself God, or calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The occasion for the man's healing on the Sabbath became the very reason the religious leaders sought to kill Jesus. And what was Jesus' response? Verse 17, my father is working until now. Does Jesus imply that the father stopped working all of a sudden? No. Just keep reading the rest of the verse. And I am working. It's though Jesus is saying, though my father rested on the seventh day from his work in creation, he has never rested for a single moment from his providential governance of the world and from his merciful work of supplying the daily wants and needs of all creatures. If God were to rest from that work, the whole fabric of the universe would unwind. And I also work the mercy of God even on the Sabbath. I don't break the Sabbath command when I heal the sick any more than God my Father breaks the Sabbath command when he causes the sun to rise or the grass to grow on the Sabbath. God works and Jesus works and Jesus is God. God the Father and God the Son work together by God the Spirit to bring about the advance of the work of the triune God and its accomplishment in the world. And it's a true revelation from Jesus that he is God, come in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And John tells us with two references, this is why they are persecuting and seeking to kill Jesus, because they understand. Verse 16, and this is why they were, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. In verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The healed man's statement about Jesus to the religious leaders brings Jesus in direct conflict with his enemies, the religious establishment. The Jews were completely unconcerned with the fact that the man was healed. When they should be praising God, they're grumbling against God, just like many of us. When we should be praising God, we're grumbling against God. The Jews were completely unconcerned 
and they were consumed with adherence to their traditions. Here's the right way for God to do things in the world God has created. So instead of praising God for the man's healing, they begin to persecute Jesus because they're completely blinded. Friends, we should pray this Christmas day, Christmas Eve, that God would guard us from the same kind of narrow thinking, a thinking that hardened the hearts of those people here toward their real need and prevented them from seeing God at work among them. Jesus defends his actions by appealing to his relationship with the Father. My Father is working on the Sabbath, and so must the Son. First century Judaism referred to God as our Father, but very seldom, if ever, did anyone refer to God as my Father, because, and Jesus here distinguishes himself once again, saying, my relationship with God is beyond anything that you've ever known. The religious leaders understand that Jesus is equating himself to be God and with God. And we need to remember that at the time, the one true God was so highly venerated that his name was not even pronounced among the Jews. Jesus' claim for them then is blasphemous because in essence, he claims authority to determine appropriate and inappropriate behavior even on the Sabbath because he is the authoritative son. So they come to kill Jesus because they realize that Jesus is calling himself God with all of this God talk. This is the first mention of their intention in the gospel, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues to go on and explain his words and actions. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. Notice how many truly, truly statements there are if you're a person who likes to underline in your Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Some of the most dense and theological statement, uh, theologically dense statements in John's gospel Lots of creeds that we have read from throughout this season have been crafted from this, these verses here in John's gospel. Creedal theology, but notice what we need to see here, that Jesus, in the midst of all of this dense theology, is making a very simple claim. He is equal with God, and he makes it even more explicit by attributing two actions to himself that are ascribed only to God in the Bible. The giving of life, and the rending of final judgment. And why has God granted him the authority to give life and render a final judgment? Verse 27. 
God has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus is to be honored. Jesus is to be honored as God is honored because he is the son of man. Friends, Jesus wants to heal you and can heal you more than you want to be healed because he is the authoritative son of man. And if he is the authoritative son of man, he is worthy of all of your trust, all of your obedience, all of your worship, the time that you give, the money that you offer, all of your service, every moment of your life, because he is the life giver and the judge. On this Christmas Eve, remember and see afresh, Jesus is the life-giving judge, and these great works are the very reason that we are to honor him as the authoritative son. Jesus now promises eternal life as the life-giving judge to anyone who takes seriously that claim. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Friend, do you want the abundance of life today? Trust in the life-giving judge, Jesus Christ. Come to Christ and believe in him. Anyone who hears and believes now the words of God's appointed judge can be assured of salvation. You can have confidence on Christmas Eve that what you will see on the last day is eternal life and not death. And it will be given to you from the one who wants to heal you more than you want to be healed from all of your sins and sorrows. Jesus wants to heal you for more than physical maladies. He wants to do something greater for you than deal with the deep pain that you have experienced from social alienation. He wants to give you something more precious than riches that take away your poverty. He wants to take all of your brokenness away from you and give you everlasting life. And because of this, he is worthy of glory and honor and praise and reverence and prayer and your tithing, your service, all of your worship for all of your life because he is the one true and living God equal with God the Father. Brothers and sisters, on this Christmas Eve, see this revelation of Jesus in the scriptures afresh and worship him as the life-giving judge the response of God's historic people to God's son is a major surprise in John's narrative. They do not respond the way that we think. And perhaps they responded the same way that some of you will today, by getting up in just a little while and leaving, giving no consideration to what they have seen or heard. But there will be some of you perhaps here today who will respond the way that John is calling us to respond throughout his gospel by believing, by coming to Christ, by trusting in Christ. And friends, if you would like to learn more about this Christ, we invite you to come. I'll be standing at that tunnel following the service. There'll be people standing at every exit today. Grab one of them and say on this Christmas Eve, what do I need to do to receive this gift of life from the life-giving judge? We would love to open the Bible with you. But we all need to ask ourselves this morning if we are following the Christ revealed in this gospel. These verses make clear once again that a person's eternal destiny is determined by one thing, their attitude 
in response to Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants to heal every person here more than they want to be healed because he is the authoritative son of man, the life-giving judge. Will you believe in him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We ask, Father, that they would resonate without a, uh, in our minds throughout this day and with us throughout the week. We pray, Father, that you would help us by hearing these words to prepare for even gathering to worship here together tonight as we anticipate celebrating the birth of our Savior tomorrow with family and friends, with those that we love and care about, new acquaintances. Father, we ask that you would help our unbelief. And Father, we pray for those who have not believed here today that they would trust in this authoritative, life-giving Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of glory. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us?